you know, you think, well, okay, you know, the purpose would be to set the table. I'm going to set the table. And so I, or go shopping, whatever the thing is. And you can tell, um, okay, you come in, okay, the table is set. And you can say, okay, well, the results are that the table was set. And therefore, um, the purpose that I was serving was a higher, you know, a higher service of higher principle. But then you have to look at the whole results. And like when Lee says, you have to accept what is as it is. You have to be able to accept it all on all these levels at the same time. So if, if all the people, like you got the kids out and made them take all the you know the stuff out, and you you, you were um, you know you, you went in there, interrupted the, the cooks, and like made you know interrupt you know whatever, had a conflict with the cook about how the table should be set up or what, you know, all those kinds of things, those are part of the results. It isn't just that the table got set. It's the table got set and there's dead bodies all over it. Or the table got set and people, the mood of the meal was was really influenced by the, the conversation that was going on, whatever, gossiping, whatever. So it really is a lot of levels to the results. So you can't just look at one level of the results, you have to look at the whole level of the results. But the results do indicate the, uh, the, um, the purpose that was served. I was just now thinking of some of the things that happened in the last celebration, for example, like the, the John T. Um, piece that we did. If, if you look at the results in terms of just how well did we do the piece? We did really bad. I heard a story about John T. America. What did you hear? I heard they did John T. It's funny because I didn't tell them exactly how we did it. A little bit. But they did John T. with just the main characters. And then <coughs> the audience was expected to fill in for the rest. But what happened is that most of the people who have experience in John T. were not in the audience. They were busy doing other things. So most of the people there didn't really know the play and the music and the whole thing. And so I heard it was the worst performance they ever did, but I don't know. It, it seemed to me that some alchemy happened here, so I don't know. But it was, it was kind of a flop. And how was it here? What? How was it here? Well, here, the results I I would from the feedback that I heard from people and what I got was that it was really outstanding, it was yeah. really amazing, really impacted people. Theatrically, the results was terrible. <laughs> you know, it was like ridiculous. It was <laughs> totally, you know, people were trying to speak. People that were. We're trying to read and speak American words that they didn't even know, you know. So there was no, the people were, but the result was, on, if you include every level mm -hmm. of the result, it was a, a really, an, uh, um, something happened in that play that made a difference for like a, the whole space and everybody involved in everything really here in, in Europe, I think, was affected by that. Mm -hmm. anyway. I heard from a lot of people. They really enjoyed it and had some effect on it. Mm -hmm. So you have to include all of the levels when you're looking at the results. Can that be when the result is not um, serving the higher purpose? 
um, that is the oh no, yeah, that uh, that there are hidden purposes in between. That that's the reason. Yes. Yeah. Which, uh, which is contaminated. Yeah, it's contaminated. Yeah, those hidden hidden purposes. Yeah. Yeah. So somebody committed, like to committed to set the table, which would be and to make a sacred space, a sanctuary mm -hmm. where we can come and be fed and nurtured and have communion and invoke the divine by the way you're setting the table and yet um, even though the table got set you know there's revenge and jealousy and mm. territoriality and competition and um, that kind of thing was going on so mm. that those are all hidden purposes of this person yeah. yeah and they don't even yeah. really know yeah. because it's hidden to them yeah. what, but everybody else feels the results of it mm. and they go mm. you know <coughs> you can see them, you said, really fast? Yeah. Enchanting? Oh, in the, uh, in the chamber. Yeah. You can see it everywhere. You can see yeah. it in every space. Yeah. Cleaning. Yeah. Yeah. What did you say? Using the children to get our own needs met, um, mm. neurotic needs met. Yeah, so that everything which comes to us from outside is a mirror of, of our in, inside. It's kind of the law. Yeah. So, do you think that pure self observation just doing that can reveal a person's hidden purpose to them or that they need a more impactful process to, to find that? Theoretically, just self-observation. <coughs> that would be my guess. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, I think Lee would be giving us a stronger thing to find those purposes. <coughs> well, he's giving us support groups. Yeah, the thing is yeah. if you discover it through self-observation, then you created the realization mm -hmm. of it. And so you probably won't destroy that realization. Mm -hmm. But if you go into a support group and somebody else creates the realization of it for you through feedback, it's really easy to destroy that realization. You know, but you yet, he's still giving us that tool. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think you just must have held um, kind of from the beginning just self-observe because you are so so in your patterns of your past so that you are just seeing everything through your glasses and you, you are not able to self-observe in the beginning and so he sends people to therapy and, and give support groups just to to strengthen this um, ability to, to self-observe so it's, uh, it's kind of steps to, towards it. Mm. You, and I think he, um, yeah, it is valuable that others, that you get this feedback from outside. And mm, maybe after a while you don't need it anymore. See, but see, he always thinks it's, it's good to, to listen to feedback. And, and he's always telling me to get keep getting feedback. Yeah, I think like he's, he's, he, he, that's a continuous process. Pretty long. Mm -hmm. I was just thinking how um, you said that 
we had us do therapy or whatever process or um, and it's almost like those are classes like side classes in relational yoga yeah those are extra yeah. credit yeah. Um, fill in the classes for how to you know to uh, improve our yoga technique our yoga of relationship techniques our method or our procedure our, our form you know practicing the form it's not yeah. self-observation is nothing that you have it's something that you really have to practice it's, mm -hmm. it's mm -hmm. to, to keep it and to keep it alive that's mm -hmm. yes. ego, ego, ego is so strong and and, and we are in our, in our physical in our bodies and, and there are so much influences which, which just disturb the self-observation just have to train, to train. In the Gurdjieff school, they used a lot of attention exercises, different forms of splitting attention. Bennett, J.G. Bennett, wrote even a, a book about those exercises. It was amazing to see some of the things that they would be doing. But just to practice paying attention and splitting attention, because you can't split your attention consciously without effort. You know, we obviously we split our attention all the time unconsciously because we chew our gum, gossip, drive the car, pick our nose, and you know, cuss at the other driver all at the same time, and listen to the radio. Well, we split our attention in more, more conscious and stronger ways too. But we don't tend to, we don't tend, you know, like we we can, for example, not everybody, but you know, people have different skills, but somebody can genuinely be with a child and cook a meal at the same time. Other people can't. Mm -hmm. But some of it's just natural tendencies and types. But the thing that's really difficult is, is to be observing the um, ego dynamics. You know, that kind of attention splitting is really basic types of, of ego strategy. One strategy is that um, says, I'm not afraid of anything. And, and the other strategy says, I'm afraid of everything. And, and both of them are defense strategies. Because the truth is that you're afraid, and sometimes you're afraid, and sometimes you're not. And it goes, you know, you have all kinds of feelings, but the strategy is, it's a general like cloud, like, I'm always afraid. But like everything, the other one, like, you know, I'm not afraid of anything. And those two, when they get together, you know, they drive each other crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Alice in Wonderland? How? Like, what are you thinking of? Um, like when she, wherever in which space she is, when she wants to find something else, she either makes this a red devil or a dick. But she has this with All right. And so that's what we need is some of that stuff, because most of us don't have that stuff. But you said neither one is. No, it's that is. I mean, some somebody caught me once that way, and he had me figure it out. And so, I mean, to me, it's right here with my cramp, you know. And it's both just the same, like the little one, the grandiosity thing. And no, that nowhere is 
vulnerability. Neither one of those is vulnerable, is what you're saying. Yeah. yeah. And serving, and it's not none of it. Both is. Being little or being big. Being both afraid or being. Right, it's all. It's all ego, it's all it's survival, it's all like it was the Alice in the one hand, she's running after that white rabbit, you know, <laughs> it's going to leave. <laughs> <laughs> white rabbit, isn't that a song? What is it? That's one of, what's her name? It's a song in America. I don't know. It was a song in the late 60s or early 70s, mm -hmm. a rock song. Oh, yeah. It's about Alice? Alice in Wonderland, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. So, I have a question about the, the purpose thing because I've noticed that the, the hidden purpose and the higher purpose is. What's important is that the, a person come to the, the specifics of that, like the language and that it is really precise. That's what we said in that talk that I read. No, the, the last talk I did here, we were reading the notes from that. Those oh, yeah. talks up, and, and he was saying you have to know the, the map, you have to know the details, you have to look at it in the face, every part of it, or, you, or you're trapped by it, you can't go on. So I found that. Um, Again, like I, I did that process, so I have some of the words for it, but just um, kind of in the feedback process this week for me, somebody named it with a couple words. And it's not that they're unusual words or words that I haven't heard before, they're common words, but they exactly fit the experience of the situation. And that to me having that kind of precision about it and not doing the, um, like accepting, accepting <coughs> what it is as it is, <coughs> is really incredibly valuable. <coughs> and that as from, from the inside, the self, the ego self, will not label it with precision. It will not, because once it's labeled with precision, it's too threatening. So the, the ego is not wired up to self-destruct. It's wired up to survive. So that, like that's something I got about um, feedback this week, was that another person can help me get to that precise language and that precise map. <coughs> and it seems like it's it's not like drawing it on the board of okay, there's the here are some words and picking one. It's like the words are the they are um, custom tailored to the situation, like the manifestation. 
it's funny because ego is ego it has to be ego that gets us into a situation where that kind of precision will happen and yet ego can't do it or won't do it like it has to be a beyond ego process that um, produces the the clarity of the self-observation to to end them and to, to remember it because we can see it for a moment and then shift identity and not remember what we saw and just forget about it for three months or six months or something until we see it again. But the guru seems to um, kind of support, to support our ego in the beginning especially so that we get kind of grounded in we get kind of addicted in a way to, to that attention and that get padded in and then at the bottom falls out of it or something. And I think that's <coughs> I think that's true in in all schools. My question about that, I mean what I thought was there seems to be some kind of initial healing that happens at some level. It's like just sort of a general self-acceptance or being accepted. It's like the great mother or something. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Embracing mm-hmm. us. It's like we're healed at a whole level. Lee says, you know, I think he said something like, you know, as soon as you become a student of a master, it's handled. Like everything is handled. It's all in the master's hands. And the rest is just the wash or whatever. It's just like whatever. But it's all handled immediately, so it's like the healing is there, and the rest is, well, how do you spend your time profitably evolving in the presence of the Master? Like, that's the hammering and the heating and the hammering and the heating and cooling and hammering and heating like that. Yeah, this book that I just read is really present for me because this guy, um, when he got to the to the feedback stage and the demand for more commitment and stuff, he started moving back, moving away. And, you know, it was up until then, I guess I'd describe it more as the honeymoon stage. And then the teacher started, like, you know, turning, turning the screw. And it was lawful, too. I mean, he knew it. He knew it later that it was lawful and what his errors were. I was uh, reading Tuahu the other day a piece about Mayor Baba, how he's working with his students at the movies over And it was about jealousy. That it was really short piece. Right? It's so well described like how he in the beginning like gives all this intention and then he, he knows and sees you right from the beginning what you know where are your weaknesses or whatever and then if there's only a little thing that he sees in you where you're dormant in you where jealousy is that at one point he will start working with that that is really then he will put his attention away and then he will step there and look around and see something is missing and what's going on. And then he will come to you and say, 
is, is something happening in the play, the innocent, like, what's going on with you? And then he would poke in the, with that person and ask and, and find out what it is for that person until it all comes into light. And then they get this as a chance to work with this. They get challenges keep coming until they lose it. But in the beginning, he makes it all big. When we were first coming into school, I remember there was a, a year or about a year worth of time when Lee was really talking about how it was up to us to um, make ourselves a big target for the teacher, too. Um, so that it was up to us to arrange it so the teacher was managing our business. And what percentage of our business was the teacher managing, you know, of our life? You know, and how our ego or psychology, whatever, would keep, we would manage the teacher's management of our business. So we would try to maneuver things around and manipulate things so that we could control and manage how much of our life the guru managed. And his invitation, like he said, like the real, like, uh, the real invitation is to have the guru manage your life 200%, which is... 200? Yeah, more than just 100%. What did you say? In the next life, too, right? <laughs> <laughs> or else you waking life and your sleeping life. <laughs> but it's really fascinating to observe how, how we undermine and forget and jockey for position and set up other circumstances in our lives so that we are managing the guru's management of our life. So they can only man, the guru can, is in a corral. You know, like, you know what a corral is? It's like where you keep the wild horses. So you put the wild horses in a small part of your mm -hmm. life and keep them contained in there so they don't just, like, run over your whole life. So we try to keep him in the corral? Yeah, he's the wild horse. Well, I kind of noticed from being in the office so much and watching people kind of come with their <coughs> personal preferences that he just goes, well, that's fine. You know, he that he doesn't try to rope us in until we're willing to be roped in. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm sure he's learned that from experience, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but it's energy management. Yeah. It's like we, we're, like I said, we're the ones who are managing our own. We're the ones who um, have to bring ourselves into that state of realization, and then we have created it. And then, if we created it, we won't destroy it. We, a person doesn't usually destroy that, but which they create themselves. Mm -hmm. So, if we can create the realization ourselves, then we won't destroy it. Well, a couple summers ago, too, he's, he's going on the thing about the secret lives. Mm -hmm. That he was going to start tearing apart people's secret lives. And I think it's. I know for myself, I thought I knew what my secret life was, but I didn't. So when he informed me of my secret life, I was surprised that that's what it was. 
I mean, not based on just what I said, but we do kind of guess. Massacre's plan is self-destruction. That's what I see. Unconscious strategies to not make work things. One step forward and three backwards. tradition that we are in, the Western Baal tradition, is a relatively new, I suppose, tradition, but it's also not a very popular tradition, probably because of the kinds of things that we've been talking about in terms of what the kinds of practice that, uh, that we're invited to do, I mean, the practices of the tradition. So if it's a relationship yoga that compared to simply doing sitting or doing a physical posture, it's it's a very confrontive kind of uh, yoga with, that is um, very fast and very subtle and very easy to fail in more than once. But, and it doesn't just end when they ring the bell or when the sashin is over. It's a, it's an ongoing yoga that um, happens even in our secret lives. I mean, it's a, I mean, happens everywhere kind of all the time. There's not much chance of us having a, a free day, you know, like to go home from the workshop or like to um, have a, a doctor's excuse or, oh, my back hurts so I can't. You know, I don't have to practice today. It's like, oh, oh, I'm feeling, you know, <laughs> superior, so I don't have to practice today. I'm feeling revengeful today, so I, I don't have to practice. <laughs> Can I tell some of it from my book? Yeah. So in this book, this guy, um, he, he was a founder of one of the Zen centers in America, and he um, brought a Roshi there. Um, he would have his vacation time every summer and 
go to his, go to the countryside and up, the, up in the mountains. And, and as time went on, the Roshi started like suggesting to him that that he like sell his little cab and uh, that he spend more time with his Zen center. And then he started getting sarcastic when he'd go, "Oh, you're going on your vacation," and the guy knew what he was pointing at, and, and he, the teacher was encouraging the man to um, to stay. He lived nearby. He lived a couple blocks from the Zen Center. He didn't actually live at the center. To stay there and, and to be, um, you know, not going not going away on this on this vacation thing. And um, there were other things that he he wouldn't do a lot of the ritual, the Zen ritual stuff, he just wouldn't do it. And like it just it just got to the point over the years that he started fading away from school because of his resistance to take the next steps, you know, to give up his his private little vacation time to to give up his, his rigidity around what he was going to do to give up his rigidity or his attitudes toward the other students. Um, and one question, they, they, have, um, they have sessions where they have a private speaking time with their teacher. I can't remember the Japanese name for it, but it's a, it's a formal, formal time with your teacher. And so he asked him what, um, you know, well, what, what could he get from the Zen Center? What could he get from, from coming around there? And, and, and the Roshi said, that's that's not what it's about. It's about what you know. What can what can you give to the Zen Center? Because he was thinking, well, if I'm going to come around, then if I'm going to be giving up my, my own private life more, then you know, what is it that I'm going to get in exchange for that? continuously and, and then he, he left for quite a while he continuously what? bargaining with him and he was in decision making position in the school also the Roshi wanted to, to create this 
really authentic and big Japanese temple in Minnesota, and and the whole like board of directors like voted against the teacher, and still when the teacher died, there was a lot of sadness that his like his vision hadn't been fulfilled by that school. This guy came back. He came back a couple of years before his teacher died, and then he started seeing all his all those years that he had wasted in his resistances to um, kind of going the, the whole nine yards, as we say in English. So that really brought up to me what you know, what is that in, in my own personal practice in life with Lee? Um, you know, what are those things that that I'm holding back? Are there any, from our reading, anybody's different readings, have you read any more of Lee talking about the yoga of relationship with being, I've only heard that phrase, that's the only thing that I've heard. Somebody said, what's our yoga? And he said, it's the yoga of relationship, and that's the only thing I ever heard. Has anybody read anything anywhere else about that? He talked about that in the summer here. Is that when you heard it was here? Because he talked about it here. says, I think it's several times, maybe it's something that come on that it's about war all the time, war all the time, so this is the, for me this is, when, when, you, when, you, when you start to discover that the war is going on in our relationships around us and in ourselves. The mirrors is all on the which is coming to us is, is all on, on, and, and which is created around us is, is the, mirror, the mirror of, of our internal relationship. Well, if the form of the yoga is only described by kindness, generosity, and compassion. But that's the form. And um, and there really isn't any other um, tool to work with that except self-observation and then feedback from support groups, for example. 
it's not very easy to to uh, attain the form. It really takes work to consider about the form and to attain that form. He said, "We're a work school." <clears throat> It's not like it's given, you know, in these yoga books, if you look at some of these yoga books, they have these photographs of these, of the form. And I wonder where the diagrams or photographs of the form are for us to model ourselves on. It's like you were saying, it's where are the models? Well, we have the book Conscious Parenting, and it's totally about relationship with children. And, um, yeah, all, all these books and... But if you read those books, it's a high form. It's very high. Mm. Mm. It's a really high form of practice that he's talking about. He's talking about, like you said, <coughs> being neither attracted nor repelled, being that which nothing can take root in, being being the manifestation of, of of kindness and generosity and compassion with the wisdom that is not inherent in our own selves. It doesn't come from our parents, it doesn't come from our history, it comes from something way bigger than us. And like, that's the form, it's the only form, it's like total and absolute responsibility for what we produce in our environment. He's talking about consciousness. Well, it's also making distinctions, because because we can we can play out low drama. Is that the term low drama? Yeah. We can play out low drama under the name of kindness, generosity and compassion. And to ego strategy, I mean it sometimes it takes a while to see that that's not really what's happening. So I mean Lee's talking about his grumpiness, and people might think that that's not very kind, but I'll tell you, sometimes it's like the balm for the the deepest wounds, is you know, <coughs> to have him yelling and screaming. It's mm -hmm. like there's a healing that happens. And I'm not saying that we should model after that, and that's not what he's asking us to do, is mm -hmm. to model after that particularly, but I think that when we speak of kindness, generosity, and compassion, there's also, you know, there's, there's ruthless compassion, and there's generosity that's much more um, expansive than just giving somebody something. Because it can, can also be a, be a straight feedback, because it can be generous, instead of holding it back. Mm -hmm. So I think those terms are really big and broad and that we have to be very careful with them and um, that we know inside ourselves and it's like you said the environment will feed back to us but sometimes it's not instantaneous I just you know in, in doing some 12 step work too and watching people try to kind of pull, pull apart some of their family things that were set in place. It's, it's so easy to confuse, like in codependent relationships, what kindness is. Mm. It's really easy to confuse when we're being mm. 
kind to each other or you know kind to another one really we're just like we're we are codependently supporting their dynamic or we are not doing something different because of our own fears so and at the same time it's really simple principles also but I think there's an element of distinction that, that we have to kind of hone as we go along in this work And how do you hone it? Sitting and watching and trying again and um, not giving up and having radical reliance on the guru and So those are two more forms, radical reliance and obedience, and, and not taking it personally, that's a form of, of relational yoga, is not taking it personally. And radical reliance on the guru is another form that, not, that doesn't just have to do with the guru, it has to do with if he's minding your business, then those people who are in your lives are part of his business, are part of the um, form that he's given. So if you radically radically rely on the guru, then you have to go, okay, th this is part of the formula. This is how it, um, this is the guru in my life. which is sort of this unbelievable, who knows what really that is. You can pick out a thing like respect or compassion or acceptance or trust or whatever, something, and parts of it. Sometimes when you're doing yoga positions, you'll get into this one a position, and then you'll, 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 this heat will build up inside, and you'll start sweating, and or your muscles might start shaking from you know being in that position. And normally, you would you would normally that would be so uncomfortable that you would stop it immediately to get out of that position. But because it's a yoga, you go into it and you stay there way longer than is comfortable. And you're sweating or shaking or um, cramping up, you know, and yet you still don't get off the posture. And so if the posture is kindness or generosity or 
acceptance, you know, c compassion, then um, it's like being kind until you're sweating and shaking. It's like being kind way beyond mm -hmm. comfortable. But observing and sweating and shaking mm -hmm. at the same time. The, those words don't seem to imply that you would have to be sweating and shaking in order to do them. No, kind. It's easy. I'm, I mean, it, you know, it seems like it's a conflict in terms. I'm not saying that it is, but mm -hmm. it, it seems like it would be within those in the nicing realm. Mm -hmm. At the same time, in the other tradition, you don't. We are not, we are not, uh, the aim is not to, well, not the aim, but the, the practice is not, and the proposition is not to force, mm -hmm. to force yourself in, 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 in ideal positions because that, that will, you would destroy yourself mm -hmm. or you would hurt yourself. But just to mm -hmm. go, to go as far as you can go mm -hmm. and just to stay in hand. So what you were saying, Fulkmar, like the aim is not to force yourself into the position, but the aim is the process of becoming able to be in that position. How would you say it? Yeah, to put yourself into the process and to be with it and, and to to go as far as you can go or to to do the practice as far as you can as far as you can mm -hmm. uh, to do it. And actually what makes what makes you <laughs> what is it that makes us uh, making a step it's it's not it's, it's actually it's not it's not us. It's just uh, the grace, grace of the cool one, grace. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's a non-linear process, totally. And part of our illusion is that, <coughs> that we, we think we can make it, and we, we are thinking linear, linear. And at the same time, when we are thinking 
linearly and we, we imagine how it should how it actually the, the process the, the process should should go and, 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 and it should work but it doesn't it does not at all it's <laughs> it's it's we can't we can't pre um, predict predict how we can predict we can't predict it's, it's our situation is although we are we are repeating in patterns and things and and habits and with situations somehow new and, and it's, it's a, new, a new challenge to, to understand try to our practice. And I'm adding about your relationship in hospitality, seeing that the law of hospitality um, most of what I heard, I, I was listening to kids do, but most of what I heard about hospitality is receiving guests, about receiving guests. But the law of hospitality also, which I really observed when I was in India with Lee and watched him being a guest, that it also involves how we are guests. And even though it appears that we are all hosting people here or you know, during seminars and celebrations, the reality is that we are all guests. We are always guests here, all of us. And that there are certain laws that of hospitality that pertain to being a guest also. Not just expecting our host to to live by the law of hospitality, but for us coming in to live by the law of hospitality as a guest. So um, that was one thing I was thinking. And the other is um, something that maybe Andrew Cohen said to our community when he was visiting our shop a couple of years ago in Arizona. I think this came from an outside source that what he saw was over familiarity in our school. So, um, to me, Arno's example, it was Arno's example, that he said. It was Arno's example? Yeah. That our school is over familiar with each other? No, I didn't say, but uh, we addressed that how it is in Arno's school, that they, they are supposed to say you as a twin. Yeah. Um, but this came also from, from somebody else. Oh, also. Yeah. I think it was Andrew Cohen. And, and I think about how um, how that over-familiarity is often one of the things that is destroying hospitality of both in both directions in, in, in our community. And, um, does everybody know what over-familiarity is? Mm -hmm. But uh, do you mean, um, what does he mean, whoever said that? Uh, or familiar, familiarity with the guests or with the people you, you visit or you are. So as a guest or as a, as a person who receives guests or with, uh, within the, the household, within the, the, the people who live on the ashram. Well, I would say that over-familiarity can go, can pass between anybody and me. Mm -hmm. 
It doesn't, I'm not just speaking about people who make hand, people don't make hand. It, it's he kind said, of like, he used casual, casualness mm-hmm. and attitude, um, um, like, uh, like thinking that our life here is about being friends, like developing mm-hmm. friendships and knowing what's going on in each other's minds. And, you know, Wilf said this one thing that I really liked was that, you know, what's, what is going on in my mind is nobody's business. And what's going on in another person's mind is not my business. And I see how much we try to mind each other's businesses and have projections and have opinions and, you know, what's going on there. And we, we um, and over-familiarity is also um, like trying to smooch up with somebody trying to get in tight with somebody and then as soon as that tightness starts coming now we think we have certain we think we have certain rights we think we can say certain things this is really easy to um, observe and go over the boundaries of Lee's household because it's it's pretty clearly defined but as soon as there's um, like a lack of practice from our end and their end there's a way that we can become over-familiar and then step over boundaries. And then the next thing, there's some kind of, um, I use that word contamination again. We contaminate our relationships, our work our work relationships particularly, we contaminate them within the school. And I think that it's, um, it's something that kind of creeps up on us and then all of a sudden we realize that um, Well, there's a, a great phrase, over uh, familiarity breeds contempt. So contempt is... Um, Hatefulness or spitefulness. So, you know, as we keep kind of thinking that we have, that somebody's given us permission or we've given ourselves mm-hmm. permission to step into a certain person's life or business or position or... Um, criticize them or, you know, thinking we, you know, it's our right to read their mail or um, (laughs) whatever it is, there's there's tons of examples, then this this kind of contemptuous relationship comes up lawfully and um, mechanically. No, I don't mean mechanically. Yeah, the law of the mechanics. The law of the mechanics, familiarity breeds contempt. So we are responsible on both ends as guest and host and, um, you know, to, to follow the laws of hospitality and within, you know, to also be hosting each other no matter where you live. Like, like um, let's say, um, yeah, like like it's my respon- it's my personal responsibility to treat all one like a guest. And, um, it's also our personal responsibility to not step into each other's lives so much that this contemptuousness comes up because we should all know by now that that happens. Yeah, I was actually going to say it the reverse, which is, it's like we each live in our own world, or we each live in our own house, and when 
when I come to talk to another person, if, if I expect that they are in my house, that they have to function by my rules or my culture, my, my world, mm -hmm. that's not being a good guest. So if I'm going to go talk to somebody, I assume that I'm coming to be in, in their house, and then I'm, I'm going to function as a, a guest in their house. And in that way, then I can have a relationship with them. It's the opposite of like what you were saying is like coming in and anyway, it's the same thing that you're saying. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. saying it a different way. Mm -hmm. Same thing. But coming to somebody and go, okay, now I'm going to be a good guest because I'm going to be with them in their house or their world, and then you have a relationship. But you're practicing being a good guest and accepting things you wouldn't normally accept or whatever you wouldn't accept in your house. Anyway, I need to go. Okay, so, Jai Guru. Jai Guru.